With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Now it's time for Culture Shocks with your host, Barry Lynn. Welcome to Culture Shocks. I met my guest, a man named Kemp Harris, at a terrific event at the Berkeley College of Music, which is not in Berkeley, California. It is in Boston, Massachusetts. But the subject of this was arts and activism. And one component was the creation of a dance work with music, the dancing by senior dance students at the Boston Conservatory, which is kind of a sister organization of the Berklee College of Music that emphasizes dance. And Kemp Harris was one of the musicians who contributed mightily to the creation of this wonderful dance music combo that the students, frankly, only had a chance to practice about 24 hours. And for those of us who like the arts, like myself, but who have, as far as we can tell, zero ounce of creativity, this was a magnificent process to watch and a wonderful performance. Kemp, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. You know, um, you didn't have a traditional career as a singer, a songwriter, a musician. And by that I mean when many people are out for 20, 30 years traveling the roads, working in little clubs, and not having a day job, you had a day job for almost 40 years doing what? (laughs) (laughs) I was a uh, kindergarten and first grade teacher full-time for uh, 40 years, and I still work in a school two and a half days a week as a sub and an aide, but I always had education as my my first and major job. Although while I was doing it, I was still doing musical theater, trying to be uh, in singing groups and uh, doing some film work. So I kind of combined it all. It was uh, a a kind of a, a renaissance man wearing a lot of different hats. That's terrific. And uh, presumably uh, clothes, too, because you'd have to dress differently. You know, uh, I don't know that this came up when uh, you and I first met, but I do have two now 17-month-old granddaughters who live not too far uh, from you up in the New England area. And uh, one of my favorite books to read to them is called 
10 little monkeys where all of these monkeys are sitting on the bed doing allegedly dangerous things like running and jumping and then falling off the bed. It turns out there's a YouTube version of you reading a portion of that book. And there, there seem to be children, both genders there. Uh, but here's my pedagogical question. When I read that story to my granddaughters, I substitute the pronoun her half the time so that when the words that are printed in the book say one fell off and bumped his head i substitute her half of the time now am i right. just being insane or do you think because you got a lot more experience with young children than i do if you're one or two or five or six years old do these gender pronouns have any significance for you as a child? You know, I, I couldn't say that I know specifically from a child's point of view, but for my thought as a teacher, I think it is important. In fact, we did a rewrite of that song and we changed it to make it like, you know, four little monkeys jumping on a hose, one fell off and bumped her nose. No kidding. The mama called the doctor, and the doctor goes, "No more monkeys jumping on hose." <laughs> we do that as a yeah. So I think substituting, you know, uh, is really important, and particularly now in terms of uh, gender fluidity for kids. Sure. Like we try not to say "Hey, boys and girls," but you know, "Hey, friends," "Hey, first graders," "Hey, kids," or whatever. So yeah. Terrific, that's a great story. I had no idea I'd get such a, a, a brilliant answer by just asking this question about the monkey book. <laughs> now you you have had this remarkable career and uh, one of the things i love to do is i when I, I come in to meet somebody who's been in films i'm a huge film fan my regular listeners know that i mean i, I i'm an a-lister at the amc theaters which means i can watch uh three movies every week uh but uh, of course i don't have time to do that but you were in two films that I remember seeing. Uh, they're both kind. Of, one's kind of a date movie, Next Stop, Wonderland, uh, based up in the Boston area, and then the other one's Beacon Hill, which is, as I recall, about a a young a politician. But you're in both of those, and they're both wonderful independent films. And my wife and I both loved them very much. Did wow, you, you know? Yeah, okay, I'm sorry. No, I, I wonder, did you did you think at part of your career, one of the things I'd like to do is make more indie films? Well, you know, it's I never really had a true trajectory on what I wanted. I tended to um, fall into different activities, film, whether it's going to be uh, doing those kinds of films. I did some commercial work. I did some work with the big band. I found that I just put myself out there as an artist and as an actor. I did a lot of musical theater, you know, live musical theater. Sure. So I was just I was just taking uh, what came along and um, I was working for this casting agency. So the, the good thing I think for me with having that day job was that I was never clawing after a, a film roles or clawing after getting commercials. I loved doing it, sure. but I always had this backbone of, of security so when I did venture out I was mainly it was a good time and I found it interesting but I I never saw myself as um, uh, you know I'm going to be an actor I'm sure. going to 
this. So yeah, so I was just um, having a good time with the security that I had this solid, um, uh, you know, uh, career underneath all that, which allowed me to spring forth on other careers. Absolutely. I think uh, it's wonderful when people have an opportunity to do that. What did you plan to do? What do you try to do with your life when people ask somebody that's five years old or, for that matter, 25 (laughs) years old, what are you going to do? It's okay if the answer is, I don't know. I'm going to be open to almost anything. Um, Your latest album is called Edenton, which is about the place, or that it's titled after the city in which you grew up, Edenton, North Carolina. And there is a song uh, called Edenton on the album, and I wanted people to have a chance to hear that, so we're going to play that now. And then when they've had a chance to hear it, I got a couple questions that arise in my mind from some of the allusions and references you use in the song. So here is Edenton by my guest, Kemp Harris. Every Monday morning, white man at the door. Insurance cost a quarter a week, who could ask for more? Movie show in the evening. My whole family's there Climb the fire escape to the balcony Cause it sure is nice up there Back in Edenton Back in Edenton Everybody knew their place Everyone had a smile on their face Back in Edenton Back in Edenton, I'll take care of you, and you'll take care of me. Mama watching in the front yard, little kids are jumping rope. Thinking about the things she'd seen, hope we never know. People walking in the evening, everybody seems so kind. Say good evening, how you doing? Well, I guess I'm doing fine Cause back in Edenton Back in Edenton Everybody knew their place Everyone had a smile on their face Back in Edenton Back in Edenton I always knew just where I was supposed to be And it was easier So much easier It was easier It was easier Been away so long now That insurance man's left town those quarters that don't mean nothing since the house is all burned down but back in Edenton back in Edenton everybody knew their place everyone had a smile on their face back in Edenton back in Edenton I'll take care of Take care of me. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, so that's Edenton by Kemp Harris. It's a great song, Kemp. I mean, I you you were kind enough to give me this album, and uh, my wife and I have listened to it uh, numerous times as we've been traveling around uh, our our two places of residence. Um, one of the things that you talk about in this is. Um, it has some language which I assume is ironic, including how you had to climb a ladder to the balcony of the movie theater every week, but uh, it was nice up there. Probably yeah. didn't think it was nice up there. How bad was it? Yeah, you know, it's so funny. I left Edenton when I was five years old, and so a lot of what I saw there, a lot of the signs that said, um, colored only or white only, um, going up into the balcony for the movie theater. I didn't really know what it was for. I knew it just was the way that it was. So I was trying to say when I wrote that line that as kids, we we didn't know, the adults knew what it was about. But in my mind, I'm like, well, that's just where we go. And it's nice up in the balcony and people go to the balcony without really knowing why I was there. So I think as a child, you do what is the way it is, but you haven't really thought about it yet, which was why when I look back at it as an adult, it's like, oh my God, oh my God, I know what that means now. I just used to know this is the door we go in. That's sure. the way it was. And, uh, and parents protect you from a lot. And talking with my mother about Edenton, she said, you know, there are so many things that we didn't want you as children to see. There were so many times that we knew if someone didn't um, behave the right way, terrible things could happen to them. We didn't know that as kids, but they did. Yeah, the parents do and should, uh, to some degree, protect their children from uh, the terrible things that can happen. And um, on the other hand, there's a little bit of a, a truth. I, I certainly could have used a little bit more when I was growing up. My parents were uh, very protective of me. I was the only kid they had. And uh, they, I thought, looking back, were a little overly and unnecessarily protected, but I wasn't African-American yeah. and I wasn't living in the Deep South. You know, every once in a while we dig deeply into the archives of this program, which has been on one way or another for, for almost 10 years. And uh, recently I went back in the archives and found an interview I had done with a, a really nice uh, singer-songwriter. She happens to be both white uh, and a woman, but she's a great blues artist. Her name is Marshall Chapman, and we ran uh, part of her interview. And she, she told me that the first time she had seen Elvis Presley, she was living in Tennessee, she had an African-American uh, childcare worker who stayed with her, and they wanted to, both of them wanted to go see Elvis, but Elvis was at a a theater with a balcony at the only place that her babysitter was allowed to sit was the balcony. So she, Marshall, and the babysitter went up and watched Elvis from the balcony. Wow. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. the, the, so uh, a totally different point of view from mine, but that's... that's... <laughs> Oh, yeah. no, no, absolutely, absolutely. Um, one of the things that um, w when you went back to Edenton recently and you, when you wrote 
the song here, what are the biggest changes from a racial perspective that you noticed in Edenton now from when you were growing up in Edenton? Yeah, I mean, I was born there in 1952, and, and one of the things that always sticks out for me, and I remember my family saying was, they appreciated the South because at least you always knew where you were. You always knew what people thought. And when you um, live North and you go back, it's always so stark to me that with all the change that people say is happening, and there has been change, but there is there's that still, that palpable undercurrent of there's an order to things there. And I know that people want to say that, that there's been change and that we've made progress and we have, but I swear that when I was there, and this is just last year, yeah. it, I, could, I could feel it still. I could feel that sense of there's an order, there is, there is a certain decorum that you still need to abide by. And it's, and it's kind of odd because going back there from uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, probably the, the most left-leaning city in the country, there's that sense of, I know that we kind of shock people there because it's oh. kind of like, oh, you, you're not following the protocol and, and we're not going to do anything crazy, but wow, you, and they, they, what I usually get is, you're not from around here, are you? And I go, yes, actually, yes, I am. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, of course, you know, the, you do realize that people in Berkeley would say, Cambridge, that's like a, that's not left, that's just a bunch of academics. Hey, um, if you, um, uh, you perform with a lot of uh, blues artists, uh, Coco Taylor and other people that many of, of us have seen, um, it was once said by someone to me that if you um, if you don't get your inspiration from the blues as an African American writer, then you get it from church. I don't know if that's true. Is it true in your experience? Oh, definitely my experience. In fact, I for me the someone sort of said to me, "Well, who are your inspirations?" And I thought of all the people that I've listen to whose music I bought but my first inspiration was the sound of my mother's voice singing. She was always um, very involved in church and she was always involved in choir and I think that my first aspects of loving music came from that and to this day I, I was at my mother's church uh, about a month ago because she has me come back to play every now and then to make sure I'm still playing for the Lord. <laughs> but, but that voice is still ringing but yeah I think um and when I write, if I'm trying to write, even if I'm hitting in a political bent, it's amazing how you can use um, stories and parables from from Bible study and things like, uh, you know, uh, I've seen mountains tumble to the sea and I've seen fire. You you know, those, those images can, can still be used to be um, very exemplary of what I'm trying to say without being preachy, without having to be over inter, you know, uh, uh, making it such sure. a, an interesting thing but that sense of I can give you a quote that says you know and the walls of Jericho tumble down and that could be applied to anything that's happening today you know? yes so the church think it, it's still a fact yeah 
You know, uh, speaking of church and a little bit of politics, I the next thing I'd like us uh, to play and to have my listeners have a chance to listen to and, and really listen to, because I want to talk about it a little bit later, is another uh, record, another song that's been on a couple of your albums, but it's on the new one, Edenton also, and it's called Ruthie's, and this is how it goes. Like we the people with constitutional rights And they call on the Lord with all of his might To strike me down That's why I never stay around I went knocking on the church front door Well I met a man named Leviticus, quoting from the Bible, wrote a chapter in the book, had a copy in his hand for proof. That's why I try to stay aloof. They're just God-fearing people with family values, and they don't value no family with people like me. That's why I try to let them be. Say goodbye to my mother today. Well, on the road to Gethsemane, walking in the rain, no escape from the lions. Let the gladiator games begin. And I call to the crowd for mercy, but still no justice comes. Only their downturned thumbs. They're just God fearing people with. like me their eyes are open but they just don't see what makes them think they're so beautiful what makes them think I'm so wrong don't they know we all can be beautiful why does it always take so
the line between church and state, wow. There was a man from the government trying to find evidence, told me that the love that I felt for my brother was wrong. They just got fearing people with family values and they don't value no family with people like me. Maybe love will set them free. That's Ruthie's by Camparis. One of the things that happens here in Washington a great deal, when a new incoming class of uh, members of the House, for example, come in, and this year, no exception, the Congressional Black Caucus will grow substantially in its numbers. But there is often a sense that, well, those people, those new members, they're going to be great they're going to be all be progressive because that's the way politicians of an african-american persuasion are um, this song of yours suggests that at least initially african-americans may not be as progressive as any other group of people but and it's not an instinctive thing but it is an educated thing. In other words, if you learn about what it is to be gay in America, then you're more likely, no matter what your race is, to be open to understanding discrimination against the GLBTQ community. Is that the point of this song? It is because, you know, um, when I wrote that, it was in response to um, some things that I'd heard a relative talk about in terms of my lifestyle. And so I wrote this piece um, sort of in, in reaction to that. The strange thing was that because I used the term God-fearing people with family values, they thought that I was doing like a gospel tune and, and, oh. and support. And I would go to, um, I would go to like uh, my uncle's church and, and they'd be like, hey, do that song, Ruthie's. We love that. And I'm like, did you hear what I was saying? There's, <laughs> and and I don't know which version you had. It was the Eaton version, but I had done a sort of like a, a slide guitar slow blues version, and then we did this, and it was almost like a a redoing of it and making it a little more funky, a little more militant. It was like the first one was like, you know, I don't go to Ruthie's. This was like, you know what? I don't go, and this is why because you all didn't get it the first time. So, <laughs> <laughs> oh man, yeah. Well, sometimes. All of us, we hear what we want to hear. We interpret yeah. things, and uh, maybe that's uh, maybe we have a few failings because of that. Just one thing: we just have about a minute here, but I wanted to just close out on one thing. Um, I know that you're a big movie fan, and so am I. And I, I have I have virtually no taste in movies. But I know what I like, and I like almost everything. But I really like this new book called Green, a new film called Green Book, with Hermershala Ali as Dr. Don Shirley, famous pop, uh, African American pop, uh, piano uh, stylist in in the early 60s. Um, 
But Green Book, you actually, your family had some experiences with a Green Book. Tell us what that is. Yeah, well, when we were in North Carolina, there sort of began that migration north for a lot of members of the family. And it happened when one uncle moved up, built a house, and then little by little, the you know, brothers and sisters and cousins would move up and then find their own way. But whenever we would drive back from uh, Massachusetts to North Carolina, my uncle had a very strict regimen as to when he started, what time he drove, how many stops you made, where you stopped for gas, where you ate. We would have to hold, go into the bathroom sometimes. We thought he was just being mean. Oh. But it turns out, because I hadn't, I hadn't heard of this on Green Book, but when the film came out and I looked back and I thought, wait a minute, he wasn't just being a hard ass. He was protecting his family. I mean, literally, we'd say, could we stop and go to the bathroom? And he'd say, not here. And we had no idea what it was about, but there were certain places he would not pull over. We had to be somewhere by a certain time because we didn't want to be in certain places at nightfall. And now it all makes sense to me. Yeah. And, and, and I don't even know if he had a physical copy of the book, but he he lived that whenever we traveled back down south. Well, it is an extraordinary story, and it's an extraordinary film, and uh, I heartily recommend it uh, to people, even people who, uh, unlike myself, uh, you know, kind of go to anything. But this really is worth going. They're getting a lot of uh, a commentary. That maybe it will be an, an Oscar winner, but a lot of criticism, as any film has, about it. In this case, uh, whether the Green Book. I read a critic the day who said uh, didn't like the film because it it took an important piece of history that is discrimination uh, and reduced it quote to a prop unquote. Ken Paris, thank you so much for being with us and uh, people can go to the landing page for this uh, episode find out how to get your materials find out more about you, watch some of your videos. I had a great time. Thank you very much for uh, joining us on Culture Shocks. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed this. Thank you. It's Barry Lynn you're listening to Culture Shocks. Welcome back to Culture Shocks. As usual, let's turn to music or comedy. Music this time. Most of the singer-songwriters that are on this program are people that I've known for a very long time, have a huge output of music, but not today. I guess is Ray Zaragoza. And I met Ray Zaragoza at a wonderful venue. If you live in a big city, there's probably a city winery near you, and it's a great collection of new people in music and established singers, and I hardly recommend you go see it. But she was opening for my friend Dar Williams, and she just was spectacular. She's a terrific lyricist. She's a committed activist, and I wish that that always went together, but sometimes it doesn't, but it does in the case of Ray Zaragoza. As usual, we'll play a few of the songs that Ray's written during the course of the next half hour, and Ray, thank you very much for joining us here on Culture Shocks. Thank you for having me. So you're in your mid-twenties. When did you decide, not just that you could write songs and perform them, but that you could write songs that spoke to political issues also? One of the first songs I ever wrote was a protest song, and it was sophomore year of high school, and the song was called Fight Up Against the Wall. (laughs) And I don't really recall what I was protesting. (laughs) I think it it was really one of those songs just about, like, teenage angst and just wanting to stand up to the man and always speak up and 
never let anyone tell you what to do. You know, I think I was, I think the, re- the, the rebellious spirit always really captured my attention. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like when James Dean is asked in Rebel Without a Cause, what are you rebelling yeah. against? And he goes, I, what do you have? <laughs> um, yeah. You know, um, so that's kind of how it started. But then um, I really, it, it took over my music in the best way possible. Um, and it, it's, it's, it has been a huge part of my artistry really since Standing Rock. Yeah, every song, of course, that has a political message doesn't have to have it very directly or very bluntly. Yeah. I mean, they're wonderful. Mm-hmm. Your contemporaries have wonderful songs. Uh, Emily Robinson has a great one about spouse abuse. Uh, Catherine Cotter has one about aging. I mean, these are really yeah. good good songs since you don't have to pit, hit mm-hmm. people over the head with it in order to make a point. Absolutely. Absolutely. Some days I also think you can have as big an impact on changing people's attitudes and changing their lives, uh, whether it's a very vocal protest song or not. Mm -hmm. I mean, my own uh, usefulness in uh, the folk world, I think, is just because it changed my own life. In the Mm -hmm. 60s, there were a lot of protest songs, a lot of protest singers, and I kind of ignored them for Mm -hmm. half of high school. And then all of a sudden, Mm -hmm. I'm listening one Sunday night to the crackling radio from Philadelphia. It was about 70 miles away. And I heard this song, I Ain't Marching Anymore, by the great Phil Oaks. And I didn't know who he was but I knew mm-hmm. that he was saying something that I believed mm-hmm. and I had been talking yeah. about it in high school and it made a huge difference. And I, yeah. I I mention that whenever I can because I think that's what the power of song is all about. Absolutely. I think there's there's seeds in all of us and sometimes it just takes a song or you know any other artistic medium to really help grow that seed into action and um that's why I, I have such i really believe in the power of music i feel like it can comfort us and comfort those seeds and also help them grow and and and, and you know really expand our minds and also let us know that we're not alone in the things that we think and the change that we want yeah it's that I am not alone a feeling that i think yeah. is is the center of so much of what connects music to activism and it makes people feel like they belong to something greater uh, in the case of the vietnam war i think many of us that grew up in that period we we thought we couldn't understand why we were going to be sent to kill people that we didn't even know just because mm-hmm. the government said you should hate them enough to right. kill them because that yeah. didn't seem like a very viable idea. And in fact, one right. of one of the songs I really like of yours is called American Dream and it reflects mm-hmm. on what we can't allow to become the face of the American Dream. And let's yeah. just give that a listen and we'll be right back at the end and you can talk about it. Here it is. I've been thinking about the news Daddy leaves it on all day through I've been thinking about the war 
To be honest, I can't take it anymore. I hear you every day. The awful words you say, but hate can't be the face of the American dream. I've been thinking about my life and how one day I want to be a mother and a wife. I've been scared of that thought too. In a world of struggle, what are we gonna do? I Saying it's gonna be okay, but hate can't be the face of the American dream. And I know we've got a long way to go. Start with me. And I've been thinking about our mother and how they took her away from her people, put her in a boarding school. Away from her brother, sister, and culture, I can hear her every night saying we've gotta make this right. 'Cause hate can't be the face of the American dream, and I. So Ray, one of the lines in this song that I, I think is so important, change is a choice and it can start with me because if mm-hmm. you can't see a way to make a different world and then you can't realize that you can be a part of it, your activism is probably going to dry up. You know, during the 2016 presidential election uh, is when I wrote the song, and that line had so much weighing uh, weight, you know, for me. And and part of it was this this just spreading apathy um, I, I've seen in young people at that time. I think a lot of that's gotten better in the past two years, and yeah. people are finally realizing that they need to take <laughs> a stand and that we have power as people but I remember speaking to a bunch of college kids and they were telling me how they weren't going to vote because Hmm. nothing ever changes and that they just didn't see the point in participating and I was so angry and 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 I think a lot of people don't realize that change is a choice I think they feel that change happens to them (laughs) and that there's not really any control they have over it and I don't believe that 
I, I believe that it is a choice and that we can participate or we can't. And we're either taking steps forward or we're taking steps back. So you're either contributing to good or you're contributing to to the bad. You know, you're either contributing to progress or you're contributing to moving backwards. Yep. And so I think it's always <laughs> crucial to participate. Um, and, it, and it is entirely your choice whether or not you do. And it's not something that someone else is deciding for you. No, it's not. And, it, and it's a choice of people in the music business also as to what yeah. they're going to do and what they're going to express. And uh, you yeah. opened... Uh, I think all of last summer for a, a band named Dispatch, and yeah. I frankly had never heard. This is Dispatch. I mean, I've been subscribing to Rolling Stone since I was, I think, seventeen, and I'm now mm-hmm. seventy. So I've got a lot of history of music, but I'd never heard of Dispatch until I met one of its members, Chad Stokes, up yeah. at the uh, Berkeley College of Music, where we were doing mm-hmm. a thing on arts and activism. And uh, he and a blues singer from Boston named Kemp Harris wrote the music for a student-generated dance program. How cool. Yeah, I mean, it was really super to watch this creative process go on for a day and then to watch its performance in public the very next day. And uh, uh, Chad and I did a couple of panels on uh, arts and activism, and uh, he told me about how... He had sold out Madison Square Garden yeah. twice <laughs> as an unsigned band. But, oh my goodness! Yeah, it's unheard a, of. Such a unheard great story. Of. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and then when he had his uh, so-called final. Uh, performance of dispatch many years ago at the hatch shell in boston and he had to beg the boston luminaries and government people to let him have twenty-five thousand people and they said uh we never have that many at those concerts but they mm-hmm. did give him twenty-five thousand. a hundred and sixty-six thousand people showed up <laughs> But one of the things about one of the things about him, and I think he he suggested to in the student sessions that we did together, he suggested that one of the reasons the band temporarily broke up, it's kind of back together now, but was because every time they would go to a community, before Mm -hmm. they would do the show, they would do something within the community to help serve the community itself and that uh, he he suggested that maybe this was a little bit heavy because there were young people they were out partying a long time and then they had to get up to do this but yeah they had a lot to do it's it's quite it's quite it's quite a story wow and uh, of course the reason they were able to sell out um Madison Square Garden, without being a signed band on a label, was because of file sharing. Uh, the mm-hmm. the late and uh, I think lamented uh, Napster, where people could share their mm-hmm. music with other people. Well, what do you think about file sharing? And do you think that the proclaimed death of the CD going mm-hmm. the way of the cassette and the eight track and the LP and the forty five RPM record? Is that mm-hmm. going to be disastrous for singer-songwriters and others who create music? Or are we going mm-hmm. to get over it and somehow turn streaming into something that makes music viable as a career choice? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's a great question. And I think it's one that all of us ask ourselves every time. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think we have to get 
a little more creative. We kind of have to roll with the punches because I think fighting it, the current isn't going to help us at all. And, and this is the way it's moving and streaming is getting so big. And there's a lot of ways for people to, to digest music in, you know, I guess a, a cheaper form. But in yeah. reality, it's not really cheaper because when you think about it, um, when you're, let's say, let's say you're paying for a premium streaming service like Spotify or Apple Music. So that would be about 10 bucks a month. Yep. You know, so you're spending $120 a year on music. Yeah. And maybe before, um, you know, I think before that, maybe when it was just CDs, I think they said on average people bought like four to six CDs a year. Mm. Um, maybe more than that, maybe eight, maybe even sure. 10. But if you're buying a CD for 10 bucks, like you're still That's actually right. spending more for music now. So, <laughs> so it's interesting. Um, but you, and the also, cre- you, the creator of the music, yeah. get a bigger cut, I suspect, and I know that you get a bigger cut yeah. if you're selling them at a house concert or a club you than you're going to get on streaming. You do, but the, the, what, what's interesting, though, is like if someone buys your CD, that's great, but they go away, and you don't know if they're going to continue to listen. You don't know if they take your CD and they use it as a coaster. You know. <laughs> but what's interesting about streaming is that you can you can, you know where they are you know where the people who are consuming your music live so you can know that you should go to those cities so i'm trying to be positive sure, because i do sure. love cd's and i mean when i go to europe they buy cd's <laughs> far more than um I, I sell at my American shows. Sure. So it's super exciting. You know, you're like, oh my gosh, like <laughs> someone wants to buy my CD for 15 euros. This is a dream. Um, so I think it's also kind of gotten to the point where CDs are, are souvenirs. It's like novelty. Yeah. And I don't think that will ever go away. I think people are always going to want to take something tangible home, whether that's a t-shirt or a CD or a cassette or a vinyl. I think it's all, it's always going to be there. Um, but as artists, we kind of just have to get, we have to kind of roll with the punches and get a little creative. Um, and yeah, I mean, cause album sales is just, you know, like with record deals and all this, it's, sure. it's, the structures change so much. So we kind of have to figure out other ways to make money. And, and although it, you know, it can be difficult, it kind of excites me. I'm like, Oh, it's a, a new <laughs> world. It's got to keep shifting with it. Yeah. It's kind of like podcasts replacing talk radio. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it's, exactly. Uh, it's one of those newfangled things for those of us yeah. who are old and that we're trying out. You know, yeah. I, I found uh, hundreds of vinyl records in a closet this summer. And on a, mm-hmm. I looked around for places that can convert CDs or convert LPs to CDs. And I found this wonderful yeah. place in Philadelphia that does it not, not on the cheap, but I mean, at a kind of an affordable rate. And, um, you can only get one copy of course of it because of mm-hmm. copyright issues, which, and I believe in copyright very much. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, these are, these are artists that, uh, very few people have ever heard of. I, I suspect mm-hmm. even as a singer, you never heard of Andy Robinson, right? I I don't think so. No. I don't know. But Janice Ian, who I'm sure you have heard of, but produced mm-hmm. his very first record. He only made two. And wow. one of them is now available in Korea. But, there, but I had both of them. And now I have them on my own little How CD. Neat. So I can play them in the car. 
that's yes, just that's the best place to play CDs. <laughs> What's so sad is that a lot of cars don't have CD players anymore. That's absolutely right. That is absolutely right. You have to put yeah. things on a hard drive or a flash drive and then plug yeah. it in. Forget it's that. I, <laughs> well, let's I go. like CDs. I love it. I, I do too. I had my Walkman that had all my cool stickers yep. on it. And I had my headphones, and I walked around with that Walkman in my side bag. And my side bag looked like a looked like a boombox, but it was a purse. And I was walking the streets of New York, and I I will I wish I still had that Walkman. Yeah, <laughs> those well, were the good old days. <laughs> yeah, you can only find them used on eBay, but you can oh still get gosh. Walkman. Well, let's go from music. Let's go to the other side of your life, and that is activism again. The Dakota Access Pipeline was just going to be built right next to the uh, Standing Rock Sioux Reservation in North Dakota. You have a great mm-hmm. song about this uh, called "In the River," but you have another song that I'd say is about the attitude that brings so many people together to be yeah. activists together, and that's a song I want to play right now. It's called. Warriors. So let's give that a listen. Then I got a couple of questions about it. Here we go. Spent my summer in a van, St. Augustine to Michigan. Held my breath. Said a prayer All those people Waiting there I've been searching so long It lived in me all along Burn me in the desert And drown me in the rain Sharing tears, thanking grace for bringing us all here. It ain't lonely on the road when there's love everywhere you go. I've been searching so long, it lived in me all I'm a warrior I'm a warrior 
That's Warrior. My guest, Ray Zaragoza. I don't feel afraid anymore because I'm with other people. I mean, that's the basic theme of warrior. You're, if, it's easy to be a warrior yeah. if there are other warriors around you. Mm-hmm. And, and I think yeah. that, you know, we talked about that a little bit earlier. It makes a huge difference, whatever group you're organizing, to have them together at one time where yeah. you can all feel the same way. You can feel good about what you're doing, the cause yeah. you support. And I think that's enormously important to make activism work. And you do it. Yeah. You said uh, that concerts can be spiritual experiences. Most people tend to have those spiritual experiences with music only in a listening room, you know, where everybody's quiet and where there's a limited number of people trying to take a pic. But can you have them in a big arena show too? Oh, yes. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, playing Red Rocks with Dispatch, um, (laughs) it was raining, and I remember, you know, during the general, everyone singing, like, go now, you are forgiven, (laughs) over and over. I mean, that was a spiritual experience, (laughs) and that was a spiritual experience, shared amongst about 8,000 people. Wow. So, yeah, absolutely. My favorite place to play is at rallies. Um, Sure. You know, it's kind of, it's like pretty scrappy you just kind of like get your guitar and run up to the stage and plug it in and <laughs> kind of almost like sing through a microphone you know or whatever sound system they have and and those times like oftentimes those can be thousands of people and everyone is just so hungry for inspiration you know and so hungry for their intentions and their concerns and and the love in their heart to be reflected back at them absolutely to know that, to know that they're not alone and yep. um so I really like to create that feeling of a rally at a concert, which is interesting because I'm a solo artist. And so I think a lot of times people think that I want everyone to sit down and be quiet and, and listen and sip their wine. But I really prefer to play like shows where everyone's standing. And I like it when I can sing a song like Warrior and I say, I'm a warrior. And the whole crowd is like, oh, yeah, you know because absolutely i i really do feel that it's an interactive experience and um you know every show i play is obviously very different but sure um i really i really do think that you know concerts can be a very spiritual experience and um in this in a similar way that rallies and marches are yeah and it's um I was at the March for Women's Lives. I spoke there some years ago during the Bush mm-hmm. years, and uh, I had a follow a wonderful uh, singer named Sonia and mm-hmm. and Hillary Clinton. So I felt wow. like it was uh, it was very tough, you know. I figured yeah. two minutes. That's all you had. Two minutes. Yeah. That's all Hillary Clinton had. Two minutes. If you didn't two minutes, the hook came out. So I had to be yeah. careful. Um, Wow. Yeah, I, I've had those experiences. I mean, whether it's, I, I remember listening to Chris Christopherson from the first row of a club here in Washington D.C., and uh, mm-hmm. it was an incredible experience. And this was right before he started to get a uh, have some real health uh, challenges. Yeah. But I've also been in big concerts, and uh, you know, depending if the crowd is not too completely uh, drunk um mm-hmm. but that that can be a that can i, I saw springsteen and a couple of mm. months later i was in japan and uh 
was waiting. I had to find something to do the last night. My wife was flying back to the U.S. a day early. So I went to a, um, a ticket agency, as I tried to explain in my English, spoken English, which is of limited yeah. use there. Uh, what's playing? Kiss was there. Now, heavy metal is mm-hmm. not my thing, but I thought, this would be great. Let's go to Budokan where there's a famous mm-hmm. album that Bob Dylan did at Budokan. I'd love to see Budokan. So get, what tickets do you have? And he said, one standing room ticket at the very top. I said I would take it. Wow. What a marvelous wow. experience, though. Because although some people brought alcohol in, they don't sell it there. And yeah. it, people are reverential. And uh, the leader of KISS, who's politically not a very nice guy, but I mean, he came out at one point, mm-hmm. he said to the audience... I really love playing in Japan, and I really love that you participate, and I really, really love the fact that you're participating, and you don't have a damn idea what I'm even saying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, wow. So that was, uh, but that was a good experience uh, in Japan, and I understand you're thinking of going to Japan. Are yes, be- I am. It's a wonderful Very country. Excited. Yeah. What is your, your, you are mixed racial heritage, mix of what? Mm-hmm. What do you mix? So my mom is, uh, she was born in Japan. Okay. And she's also Taiwanese. Okay. And my dad born in California, but he's of Mexican and Native American descent. Interesting. Thus, yeah. the name Zaragoza. Now, This Mm -hmm. just shows you uh, what an obscurist uh, I am, but the only time I'd heard of Zaragoza before meeting you in December was in that Mm -hmm. wonderful Ian Tyson song, a tragic story about rooster fighting, where the owner of the rooster is Carlos Zaragoza. And his... Oh, my God. Today, my uncle. (laughs) He could be. He could be your uncle. Well, my uncle. He my could. He, maybe he should be your so, uncle. So. But anyway, but but, <laughs> but it's good. No, it's a great song. You should listen to it if you don't know it. Oh but wow! It, I, yeah, I don't know it. I'll yeah, it, it's yeah, it's uh, Gallo de Sierra is the name of the rooster, and that's the name of Ian Tyson's song. It's oh, really nice. been fun to talk with you. I'm really glad you uh, could take yeah. the time to be on the show and to uh, thank you so much. Give a little uh, give a little music, and when we come back next week we'll do this again i'm barry lynn that does it for today 